Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those up with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. We're taking a a break as per our usual, at least uh, for this year, this Sunday morning. On um, the first Sunday of each month throughout this year, we have decided to uh, spend some time emphasizing those truths, those beliefs, those practices that that unite us as a church family. Uh, so there are many truths that we believe as Christians, and many things that we believe and practice as particular members of this local church that, that do, in fact, unite us in the gospel and also in what we understand a church to be and a church's responsibility to do and all of those kinds of things. But we've covered a number of topics, and today we'll cover another. This morning, the topic is going to be meaningful membership. Or as I'll term it here in just a couple of moments, discipleship, uh, Christianity. Uh, this, these are synonymous terms, uh, especially or at least synonymous concepts with regard to what the Bible teaches about these things. I want to start by, though, asking you a question. And that is, why would anyone want to be a member of a local church? Think about that for a second. Does it really even matter whether or not a Christian is a member of a church? I mean, some churches don't even have a formal membership. You've probably also heard it said that church membership doesn't save anyone. It's a personal relationship with Jesus that saves. And well, that's true as far as it goes. But this kind of statement can also be pretty misleading. It gives the impression that someone can follow Jesus, that is, be a Christian, without any attachment to the local church. It also makes it sound like a relationship with Jesus is something that's only or merely personal or private. But friends, the Bible teaches otherwise. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And the Bible universally equates union with Christ, salvation, participation in the gospel, with tangible and observable relationships with other Christians. These things go together. Simply put, to be a Christian requires other Christians. Or to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need other disciples. As I said before, the words disciple and Christian, they mean the same thing in the Christian context. A Christian is a Christian, which means someone who obeys, follows, believes, trusts in Jesus Christ. In other words, his disciple. So today I'm going to be highlighting discipleship or Christian discipleship which is an all-of-life endeavor that is not natural to us as fallen or sinful humans. Christian discipleship necessitates intentional and loving relationships with other disciples. And this is God's biblically revealed plan for producing results, spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, some of you might be wondering, what in the world does discipleship, all this talk of discipleship, have to do with church membership? After all, you won't find the phrase church member or church membership in the Bible. And of course, that's true. But church membership is the formal structure of Christian relationships as they seek to apply the biblical, the Bible's teaching about how Christians are to relate to and with one another. So again, speaking in simple and straightforward terms, call it whatever you want. But when you try to live as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, in the way the Bible says that we're supposed to do that, then you will inevitably arrive at something that looks and feels like what I'm calling church membership and what Christians have called church membership for a long time. 
So today is another one of those topical messages. I won't be expositing the passage that we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 in great depth, though I do always intend to look to the passage and to faithfully explain and apply it to our lives. So let's turn then to Romans chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 1 and I'll read through verse 13. If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. You can use that. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one not too far away. And I'll be on page 891, 891. One of the ways that we show respect for God's word is we stand while we read the primary passage. Would you mind standing with me as I read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. As I mentioned before, today will not be an exposition merely of this uh, of this passage. Uh, Merely is not the right word for that, but I won't just be staying in this passage. I'm going to be on the topic of church membership or Christian discipleship. And the main point that I'm going to try to make, which I think is faithful to this text, is that God has designed Christian life and growth to happen around the hub of the local church, which is the structured manifestation of loving discipleship. God has designed, he has intended it to be so, that Christian life and growth are to happen around the hub of the local church, which is the structured manifestation, display of loving discipleship. There'll be seven points, some much briefer than others, but let's just get straight to it and starting with point number one. Point number one is this, that discipleship is an all-of-life endeavor. It's an all-of-life task, an all-of-life effort. Now, the main passage this morning is the first part of Paul's last section of instruction in this letter to the churches there in Rome. Chapter 11 ended with Paul praising God for his wisdom in the plan of salvation, which Paul explained with careful detail throughout the bulk of this letter. And chapter 11 begins the section of Paul's pastoral application. Uh, Not necessarily about 
what Christians ought to believe about the gospel, about Jesus, about salvation, about God's sovereignty in it all. But particularly about Paul launches here into some pastoral application regarding how Christians ought to live because of what they believe. That's why he says in verse one of our passage this morning, I appeal to you, therefore, the therefore is linking what follows to everything that went before it. And the therefore is telling us that the stuff we're studying this morning in Romans chapter 12 is based on what's written in the previous chapters. Now, on a side note, I commend the reading of this letter to the churches in Rome to you. Uh, You can sit down and read it this afternoon, even in about 45 minutes to an hour is about how long it would take you to read it straight through. And it'd be a great use of your time. But in short, the book of Romans is a long form presentation, explanation and application of the gospel. It is the gospel message in long form and excellently so. So after his opening greeting, Paul summarized the depravity of sinners in chapters one, two and part of three. You can flip to the left with me just a little bit if you'd like. In chapter three, around about the middle in verses 20 and 21, Paul gives us one of those wonderful contrasting statements that we find in the Bible. So Romans chapter three, verses 20 and 21 says, by the works of the law, that is God's law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's law shows us how sinful we are. But verse 21, there's that contrast. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's saying there the righteousness of God comes through, through, uh, through God, that God is able to give his righteousness to guilty sinners. And this is apart from the law. So not by obeying the law, although the law of God and all that God has prophesied before bears witness to this way in which God makes his righteousness accessible to guilty sinners like us. And then Paul essentially gives one of the best concise summaries, I think, of the gospel. So verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, this is the good news of the Bible. We are sinners, but God has put forward Jesus Christ, the son of God and God, the son as a propitiation as a sacrificial offering, as a wrath-absorbing substitute. And sinners may receive the benefits of God's offering in Christ, which is the very righteousness of God. That's what we benefit uh, from God. By nothing other than simple faith or trust or belief in this fantastic news and in this marvelous Redeemer. Let's just savor that for a moment. Death is what God has demanded for sin. And He offered his own son on the altar of death so that sinners like us might not die, but instead would live through Christ who conquered death forevermore. Therefore, verse one, Paul says, because this gospel is true by the mercies of God, how are Christians supposed to live? Christians are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service. This is a radical call to a life of serving or worshiping God in all we do. 
Again, remember that this idea of service and worship to God, these are synonymous terms as well. There are a lot of terms that sort of overlap that we're finding in the Bible. Serving God and worshiping him are not two different things. They're the same thing. Worshiping God is not just something we do when we're singing songs together. Not just something we do on Sunday mornings, but worshiping God is something we do all day, every day. We should at least be aiming for such a thing. So then the call of the gospel is not to go and die for God, but rather to go and live for him. Because in Christ, he's already died. God has done the dying. And so he calls us to then live for him. So there is a sense in which, hear me say this whole thing before you throw stuff at me. There is a sense in which Christian discipleship is all joy and no pain. We come alive to the mercy of God for us. We trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And then we live our lives to the glory of God who has shown such great love for us. And in our service to him, we reach heights of greater joy than we would have ever done had we continued to live for ourselves. But alas, we know that Christian discipleship is not all joy. We know that it indeed is painful, not only because of the sorrows of this life, but also because living for God is the opposite of what we naturally love and want to do. And this leads us to point number two. Discipleship is not natural to us. In verses two and three, we read some sobering words about what is natural to us. And how we ought to be careful both to recognize it and to war against it. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Do not be conformed to this world, we're told. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That so that by, the te- by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, that is to the Apostle Paul. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So friends, in our, in our day and in our cultural context, we are encouraged 24-7 to follow your heart, to do what feels right, to be yourself, or even to define yourself. You get to say who you are. It's no surprise then that what I'm calling discipleship or church membership, that it may feel oppressive or even harmful to many in our culture. Maybe even some in this room right now. But the Bible is teaching us in these two verses, as well as in many other places, that our will or our desires or our preferences are naturally aligned with what the Bible often refers to as this world. And that's not a good thing. In fact, when the Bible contrasts this world's way of thinking with God's, it reveals to us some major differences between the two. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, we learn that the wisdom of this world is folly or foolishness. In John 12 and also in 2 Corinthians 4, we learn that in some sense, the devil himself is a sort of ruler of this world who has blinded the minds of sinners in it. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that the natural course of this world is disobedience and not obedience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we learn that this present world is temporary and passing away. And that's why the admonition that we see in verse two of our passage is so important. Look at it there. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't go with the flow. Don't follow your heart. And for the sake of your own soul, don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, what we see in this passage 
is a two-pronged approach to combating our natural tendencies. The first we see, at least not in in, uh, chronological order, but in the order in which I'm going to emphasize them, is in verse 3. And that's where the scripture says that we are to think with sober judgment about ourselves. So, brothers and sisters, this is one of the hardest things for us to do. All of us tend to think about ourselves differently than we truly are. And our perspective changes not by the day, but by the hour. We wake up in the morning, we get a little bit of coffee, we read a couple of verses of the Bible, and we feel great about ourselves. Uh, Then our mind begins to drift when we try to pray for longer than three seconds. Things don't go our way. We lash out at those around us. And before we get out the door, we feel horrible about ourselves. The truth is that at our best, we aren't nearly as awesome as we'd like to think. And at our worst, we aren't nearly as monstrous as we might be otherwise. We are always falling short of the righteous thoughts, words, and deeds that we should have. And we are capable of far more evil than most of us would like to imagine. And like G.I. Joe used to say, knowing is half the battle. And that's why we need someone or something to help us to think soberly. And that's exactly the second feature of this two-pronged approach that we see outlined in our passage. So verse 2 tells us that the Bible is the place that we should go repeatedly and often in order to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So in order to think with sober judgment about ourselves, we need the God who made us to tell us how we're supposed to function and why it is that we're not functioning properly. And when the world, either big or small, inside or outside of us, feels chaotic and out of control, the Bible is our anchor. It is the place that we find stability and truth. God's word doesn't change with time or circumstance or politics or culture. And it's always genuinely wise and genuinely helpful and edifying. However, our passage does not lead us to think that Christian growth happens when it's just me and my Bible, isolated from other people. No, that's the opposite of what we see here. And that leads us to point number three. Discipleship necessitates discipling. Discipleship necessitates discipling. So brothers and sisters, especially those who are members of FBC Diana, we've talked about this many times and it should come as no surprise to you that the New Testament assumes, exemplifies, and even explicitly commands a collective structure of the Christian life. We've talked about this a lot over the years and and it's particularly something we emphasize here because it's so obvious in the Bible and then so neglected among many professing Christians in our day. Most often when we've talked about this, I've stressed the need for Christians to be discipling others, that it's our responsibility to do that. And certainly that's an aspect of it. I've often quoted Mark Dever whenever he says that discipleship is me following Jesus and discipling is me helping others to follow Jesus, right? And we really can't have one without the other. But right now, this morning, I'd like to emphasize the need that individual Christians have for the discipling investments of other Christians, So not only our need to be discipling others, but our need to have others invest in us, to disciple us. And if we're going to think soberly about ourselves, if we're going to have minds that are being renewed, as this passage is telling us, if we're going to keep on following Jesus through many dangers, toils, and snares, we are going to need one another. We're going to need each other. Christians in a committed relationship together, which is what a local church is, look at verse 4 are one body 
with many members. And like a human body, also there in verse 4, not all members have the same function. Nevertheless, in verse 5, all members, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another as well. United to Christ and united to one another. And what is the purpose of this interdependent relationship between all the members of any particular body of Christ? Well, you see that in verse 6. We all have gifts that differ from one another, but that's exactly as God has intended it to be. And it is this way so that we might use them to benefit the whole body. That is to benefit one another. So brothers and sisters, each of us needs the rest of us. And not just in some ethereal, sending you good feelings kind of way. We need each other truly and tangibly. Verses 7 and 8 mention specific gifts and specific uses for them. But we might miss the entire point of the passage if we get bogged down into the weeds of trying to figure out the meaning of each one of these gifts. Now, certainly studying scripture is always good. And we might spend our time well by trying to better understand what Paul meant by listing these particular gifts in the way that he has. But don't forget the main point of the list. What's the whole list there for anyway? That is that Christians, the main point is that Christians have the gifts that they do, whatever they might be, in order to use them for the benefit of one another. Furthermore, it would also be an error to assume that what Paul intends is for Christians to refuse to serve or to teach or to lead or to be hospitable because Christians don't feel as though that particular gift is theirs. Friends, don't put so much weight on what you feel you're gifted to do that you lose sight of the needs that might be right in front of you. So is your brother grieving? Well, then comfort him. Is your sister gossiping? Well, then confront her. Is your brother prideful? Well, then help him see his arrogance. Is your sister weak? Then help her find strength in the Lord. Is your brother ignorant? Well, then help him grow in his understanding of God's word. Is your sister confused about what it means to be a godly woman? Well, then model it well for her and then patiently teach her. Many more things could be said, but remember, more important than all of these efforts is that we disciple one another and be willing to be discipled, right? That's the most important aspect of this whole thing. We must be willing to be vulnerable. We must be willing to be exposed. We must be willing to show our weaknesses and to receive godly instruction with humility and love. And the only way that we can do that, to have that kind of vulnerable, willing, humble relationship, is if we know each other really well. And that leads us now into point four. Discipleship assumes an actual body. So if what we're after is meaningful, vulnerable, mutually dependent relationships, well, this assumes an actual body. So remember the analogy that we read about in verses four and five. It's popular today, and it has been for a while, for American evangelicals to apply this analogy of the one body and us being united to one another. It's been very popular for a long time for American evangelicals to apply that analogy to what's historically been called the universal church. But to almost entirely neglect this analogy in its application to the local church. The universal church is the collection of all Christians from all times and all geographical locations, which will one day be visible when we in our resurrected bodies gather in the presence of Christ himself never to depart. That's the Christian hope for all those who are in Christ. 
But until then, the universal church is invisible. You can't see it gathered all in one spot. It's not ever visible. And yet, in a sense, this universal church is made visible, at least in part, in the gatherings of particular Christians, in particular geographical locations, at particular times in this present world. One pastor says it like this, that membership in a local church is intended to be a testimony of or to our membership in the universal church. He went on to say that church membership does not save, but it is a reflection of salvation. And then he asked this question here, which I think is a good one. He says, if there's no reflection of our salvation, then how can we be so sure that we're truly saved? Let me just take a moment to state the obvious, if for no other reason than the fact that so many professing Christians today seem to miss or ignore or maybe even rebel against the obvious. If we are not showing tangible love to particular Christians, ones with names we know and personalities with which we are familiar and prickly edges we've personally experienced, then we're not really loving any Christians at all. Verse 10 of our passage commands us to love one another with brotherly affection. So the question to consider is who is your one another? If you don't have a one another with a name and an address, well, then how can you obey this command? Number five, discipleship is a life of genuine love. Discipleship is a life of genuine love. I just pointed us to verse 10, but the command there in verse 10 to love with a brotherly affection it's, it's built on the foundation of verse 9. Let love be genuine. The King James says, without dissimulation. The New American Standard says, without hypocrisy. The NIV says, love must be sincere. All of these are conveying the heart of this command. The King James and the New American Standard translate this under, underlying word most accurately. But probably most of us in the room are not ready to give a, a definition of what dissimulation means. But we all know what hypocrisy looks like when we see it. That's when someone's words don't match up with their deeds. We know what that looks like. We've seen it sometimes in ourselves. We say, I'm here for you, but we're never actually present. We say, I'm committed to you, but we leave when things get hard. We say, I love you, but we never really show that love in any visible or tangible way. Friends, the Bible clearly teaches us that love is visible. It's something you can see. It's not merely a feeling. It's not merely an intuition, a sense. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible tells us that God shows his love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God makes his love known by showing it, by doing something and doing something at great cost to himself for the benefit of others. This is what love looks like. And the love that will mark believers as followers of Jesus is the same kind of costly, God-exalting, supernatural love that Jesus shows us. One pastor said, our love for each other is the visible sign that we grasp the invisible love or the, the love of an invisible God. So as John might say in one of his letters, how can you say you love the God you can't see if you don't love the brothers or sisters in Christ that are right next to you that you can see? Right, this is the idea. So then an exhortation that I might have for us this morning is that we, following after 1 John 3, would not just love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
And if we're going to love like this, it's going to be on the basis of a growing understanding that God himself has shown us exactly how to do it. He's already given us the example. Point number six. Discipleship means tangible love. Discipleship means tangible love. So flowing out of the concept of genuine or unhypocritical love that we've been talking about. Verses 9 to 13 of our passage gives us some specific commands about what this kind of love should look like in our everyday lives with each other. So what should love look like? Well, here here are some things. This is especially how the relationships between those who are fellow church members, members of the same visible body, are to interact with each other. So meaningful, meaningful church membership then is the kind of membership that tangibly makes a difference in our lives. We are to do and not do various things as a demonstration of our love, both our love for Christ and our love for one another. So our love for fellow church members in verse 10 is to be a brotherly affection. Church membership is a family bond, only much deeper and longer lasting than any biological bond that we might have with our earthly relatives. And that's not to say that, you know, we can, we can never you know, move from, from being a member of one church to another. There are all kinds of good reasons that a person might do that. But it is to say that our, our, our membership, our committed membership to one another, with one another, our union with one another, is something that is significant. That it's not just haphazard, it's not just run by feelings, that circumstances ought not affect it in the way that we often think. Furthermore, love for one another is tangible when we show honor to our fellow church members in our passage here we see. This is the the idea that we value them. We treasure them. We act and speak as though they are significant to us. We don't disregard fellow church members. We don't imagine that other church members are just sort of an extra give or take appendage to our lives, but we value them. They are significant to us. We miss them when we don't see them. It means a lot when they show up. Or how about verse 10? The command here is even that we seek to outdo one another in showing such honor. That when we feel valued, honored by some fellow church member of ours, that we should seek to one up. Let me honor you above myself. Let me value you above myself. Our love for one another is in verse 11, not to be slothful or lazy or holding back in our zeal or diligence. Rather, we are to understand that our tangible show of love for one another is our service to the Lord. This is one of the ways that we serve God is by diligently aiming to pursue a life of love for one another. Verse 12 Our love is visible when we rejoice together in our common hope. When we share the same hope with other believers and we rejoice together in that. When we're patient together during times of tribulation or suffering. When we collectively with one another endure patiently the difficulties of this life. Or also in verse 12, when we're constant or faithful in our prayer for one another. Brothers and sisters, especially those who are members of FBC Diana, this is why 
we value our collective times of prayer together. When we get together on Wednesday nights and pray, for those who uh, have the opportunity to come on Wednesdays, and particularly those second Sundays of the month when, when we gather on Sunday evenings as a church body to pray. We pray for one another during those times. Those are the times on those Sunday evenings when we learn about the, the details of each other's lives, what's going on among our church body, what kinds of things we ought to be praying for. Those are more the kind of family gathering where, where we are a bit more intimate and a bit more with our, you know, those of us who have hair, we let it down a little bit on those Sunday nights and we, we, we get a little closer to one another and we share our burdens and we lift those to the Lord together. Those are certainly not the only times that we should be praying for one another. We should be doing that individually. When's the last time you prayed for your fellow church members? When's the last time that you prayed for a church member you don't know that well? That God might help you to know them better. Verse 13, our love is visible or tangible when we contribute to others' needs and when we pursue or seek to show hospitality to one another. Hospitality is, is kind of a word that, you know, it can mean sort of inviting someone over to have dinner with you. It certainly is underneath the umbrella of hospitality. But hospitality is, a, is more than just that. It's the idea of sort of opening your life. It's including others in your everyday lives, in our everyday lives. And again, see in verse 13, it's not just that we would just uh, tolerate such a thing, but that we would pursue it. We would seek to show it. That is, we would invite, actively invite fellow church members into our lives. Many of you, especially members of this church, already know that uh, it's passages like this from which our membership covenant is built. Where the New Testament gives us commands, instructions, and examples about how we're to live with one another. And so we summarize many of those things in the promises that we make when we sign up to be church members. And when we reaffirm those promises again and again as we gather together, and especially when we observe the Lord's Supper together. Uh, Much more could be said on that, but let me turn now to point number seven. This kind of discipleship produces results. So remember, I asked you at the outset of all this, why in the world would anybody want to join a church? Why would someone want to be a church member? So let me ask you again, except now with all the freight that I've loaded on top of that question. Why would anyone want to sign up for this kind of costly, invasive, intentionally inconvenient kind of relationship? Why would anybody want to do that? Well, I'll just name some of the results or benefits that Christians can experience within the context of church membership. And I'll also add that in, uh, that in reality, not just, not just uh, sort of the, the kind of made-up temporary results, but in reality, these results are only possible in the context of biblical and meaningful church membership. It's not something you can manufacture in any other context. It's only in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can enjoy these kinds of benefits in this kind of way. The first one I'll mention is real unity. The world is screaming at us today, I don't have to tell you, They're telling us that the only way that we can have real unity is by isolating ourselves from those who disagree with us. We have our political, our social, and even our racial tribes, and we are at war with all other tribes. But within the context of the local and visible body of Christ, there is perfect unity crossing all of those other barriers that might divide us in the gospel. Even if we disagree on a thousand other things, 
Our love for Christ and our love for one another makes us patient with those who disagree. It makes us humble, knowing that there's still so much for us to learn. And it makes us hopeful, remembering that where we are is not where we always will be. A second benefit that belonging to a church family that practices meaningful membership produces is the needed correction and accountability. The first step in understanding the gospel is recognizing our inclination to our propensity for sin and error. Therefore, it comes as no surprise, at least it ought not come as any surprise, that we still sin and that we still embrace error and that we need correction. This is, the, this is what biblical church membership provides for us. Our loving brothers and sisters wade into the mess of our lives, even willing to get a little of our dirt on them so that they might help us to see our error and repent. The world around you will tell you that anyone who tries to correct you is unloving. Anyone who doesn't affirm you for who you say you are is unloving. But deep down, we know that we all desperately need correction. You and I both know that the wake of our lives, the, the wake that goes behind us as we've gone is not awesome. We leave a whole bunch of nastiness in the wake behind us. We still need correction. We know that we are not as we ought to be. And within the loving and structured relationships that we have among a local church family, we can put down our defenses and embrace the unpretentious correction that we all need for our own good. That's not to say that we'll never get hurt by each other. It's not to say that I'll never say something that hurts your feelings or you'll never say something that'll hurt mine. It's not to say that you'll never use something that I've said behind my back and make a fool of me in front of others. But it is to say that the vulnerability that we experience in those kinds of relationships is worth it 10 times over because of the results that it produces. A third benefit is our assurance. Assurance is what this kind of meaningful discipleship, church membership, Christianity produces. When we are all signed up to follow Jesus together, and when we're all committed to patiently forgiving wrongs, as well as, well as confronting patterns of sin, then our mutual affirmation of one another, that we're all Christians together, is no small thing. In other words, if we all believe with conviction that being a Christian means truly loving Christ, sincerely repenting of sin, and genuinely loving one another, then, and if we're willing to call each other Christian, then that label really means something. So for all of us in this room, anyone who's a member of, of this church especially, uh, for, for another church member to call you brother or sister should assure your soul before the Lord. That's no small thing. That you are welcome at the Lord's table together when we observe the Lord's Supper as a church family. There should be a comfort of assurance to your soul. These people say that I'm going to be good before the Lord, the Lord when I stand before him. These people say that I'm their brother, that I'm their sister. This is great assurance, especially when we understand that words like that mean something and we don't just say them. A fourth benefit when we practice this kind of biblical church membership is an authentic Christian witness. When the lines between Christian and non-Christian, when that line is obvious, and when those who are calling one another Christian are living consistently with that profession, 
then those around us can more clearly see, number one, what they are not, and then number two, what we're calling them into. So when Christians, in the context of the local church assembly, when they're living their lives out in the world, don't live in consistency, uh, in, with consistency regarding their profession of faith, and they're not called out for it among their Christian brothers and sisters, then the world beside them, including those folks who think they're Christians but are not, sees that hypocrite living out in the world, not being rebuked by their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they say, well, that just must be what Christianity is. And that's why we as Christians, especially those who live in the southern portion of the United States of America, in the Bible Belt, who all claim to be Christians, but many of us don't live in keeping with that profession of faith, that's why we've earned the name of hypocrite. But when we practice church membership like this, we give a consistent, authentic Christian witness to the world. So sinner certainly sticks. You can call me a sinner and I say, amen, that's true. That's why I'm so thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But hypocrite, oh God, may it never be. May I always be honest about my shortcomings and my failures. May I live with honesty and authenticity before both my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are not. So that Christ's name might be honored. And so that those who are not now following and loving the Lord Jesus might see what we're calling them into. Fifth and finally, by way of application, what does this kind of practice do? What, what result does it produce? Well, it produces perseverance. This is the ultimate result or benefit that we're all after. Or at least we should be. Now, I'm a Baptist through and through. I believe that once someone comes to spiritual life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that life can never be taken away. I believe in the doctrine that underlies what Baptists have historically called once saved, always saved. That a Christian is a Christian. One who's spiritually alive can never be dead again. And yet, there are warning passages in the Bible for a reason. Many times in the New Testament, we are warned to persevere in the faith. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast, persevere, the confession of our hope without wavering. First Corinthians 15, 2 says, we are being saved if we hold fast to the word or the gospel, which was preached to us, unless we've believed in vain. Or how about Hebrews 3, 13 and 14, exhort or urge one another every day, that none of you may be burdened by the, may be hardened, excuse me, by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that one of, one of the primary ways that we as individual Christians persevere in the faith, that we hold fast to Christ, is through the exhortation and the urging and the accountability and the edification of other Christians around us. We need each other so that we will persevere. May God help us all to embrace this kind of loving relationship, this kind of vulnerability, this kind of humility and charity. May God unite all of us in the bond of love as brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God cause us all to grow even to produce much fruit in our lives as we enjoy the benefits of doing church the way God says so.